Wow, I feel like a very lucky man tonight. Not everybody gets to hear their eulogy during their own lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Graham had to die to hear his eulogy. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rabbi Joey, for your very, very kind and gracious words. I was at a dinner once and uh, the master of ceremonies introduced Senator Joseph Lieberman from uh, Connecticut and he extolled his virtues ad infinitum. And finally Lieberman gets up, he says, it's a pity my parents are not here this evening. My father would have appreciated these words. My mother would have believed them. <laughs> now friends, when I was coming to Manchester, I was a little worried that I may find some of you folks in a uh, bad mood to, due to the pending snow. We have heard the prophecies of doom all the way back in the United States that snow may descend upon Manchester. Now in New York, I'm used to people who are in a bad mood, depressed, uptight. And people once asked me, why are New Yorkers, you know, such a bad mood, I said, you would also be if the light at the end of your tunnel was New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Baruch Hashem, it turned out that I found everybody in a very uh, joyous mood. But then I was worried that perhaps there would be another reason for doom. What if uh, Manchester City would have lost to the Arsenals? <laughs> but I see that all the lawyers are overjoyed from the fact that Manchester City got its trophy last night. But then I was worried that's for the lawyers. But what about all of the other good Jews who are from Manchester United and hearing that they also won yesterday really shows me that God welcomed me <laughs> such grace, hospitality, and warmth covering the entire spectrum of the Jewish community. Those who are into the city and those who are into United, the entire Kehila. Are there any other types of Manchester? <laughs> We're all given trophies, so, and the snow is waiting, and it wasn't that cold, it was a little cold, but not that cold. So I am fortunate and privileged to be with all of you here this evening. They tell a story that Dr. Albert Einstein, who was of course the greatest scientist of the 20th century, was also known as an absent-minded professor. And he once takes a train from Princeton, and he's on the train, and as it used to happen in the olden days by us, the conductor starts walking from cabin to cabin, collecting the tickets and punching them, as you still have in many places here. And he comes to Albert Einstein, and Einstein checks his pocket, and there's no tickets. And he checks his pants, and there's no tickets. And he checks his briefcase, there's no ticket, and he looks under his seat, and near his seat, and there's no ticket. It's an embarrassing moment. The conductor looks at him and says, Professor Einstein, we all know who you are. You're Albert Einstein. I am sure you bought a ticket. It's fine. Wow. 
And the conductor moves on. And as he moves on, he turns around to collect more tickets and he sees Einstein. Mamish Kaireya Omishtachave is on all four, prostrating himself and on the floor, searching for something. And he goes back and he says, Professor Einstein, what are you searching for? He says, My ticket, my ticket. He says, Professor Einstein, I told you already. I know who you are. You're Dr. Einstein. I don't need your ticket. I'm sure you bought a ticket. I know who you are. And Einstein looks at him and he says, I also know who I am, sir, but I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> and that sometimes, my friends, is far more challenging. Moshe Dayan, Israel's defense minister, was once driving on an Israeli highway 145 kilometers per hour, which in Israel was pretty slow. And a policeman stops him and says, Dayan, you're a general, you're a defense minister, you want to serve as a role model for Israeli society. You're driving like a madman. I'm going to quadruple your summons. Moshe Dayan, who had that, you remember the patch on his eye, looks at the police officer and he says, look at me, I have only one eye. What would you like me to do with this eye? Look at the speedometer or look at the highway? <laughs> I, I do. Now, whenever I say this joke, somebody in the crowd wants to know if he got a ticket or not. <laughs> My grandmother used to say there are three types of Jews, Shlomil, Shlomazos, and Nudniks. The Shlomil is the guy who poured the soup today on the Shlomazos. <laughs> The Nudnik is the guy who wants to know what type of soup was it. <laughs> I don't know if Dayan got the ticket or not, but do I actually care? But his insight, his insight was penetrating. When Trump was running to become president, he visited Miami Beach. He wanted to garner the Jewish vote in Miami, so he goes to an old age home, what we call today a home for assisted living. He walks in, there's a 99-year-old woman there. Trump looks at her and says, Hi, do you know who I am? She says, No, son, who are you? She says, You don't know who I am? She says, Absolutely not, who are you? He says, The whole world knows who I am. How do you dare not know who I am? Look at the blonde hair. Look at the hair, look at the stature, look at the wisdom, look at the charisma, look at the potency, look at the brilliance. How do you not know who I am? I'm world renowned, I'm the most famous personality today. She says, relax, I really don't know who you are. He is pounding on the table, tell me right now who I am. And another woman, 89 years old, comes over to him. She starts caressing him and she says, relax, relax. This happens very often around here. <laughs> I will call the head nurse and she will tell you who you are. <laughs> you were here to tell me why. <laughs> so, 
When it comes to the issue of identity, life could be confusing. When Golda Meir became the Prime Minister of Israel, she penned a letter to Henry Kissinger. And she wrote how she looks forward, finally, to have a close working relationship with the U.S. Henry Kissinger is Jewish. And he writes back to her, he says, Mrs. Mayer, you have to remember my priorities. Number one, I am an American citizen. I am not an Israeli. Number two, I am Secretary of State of the U.S., not Foreign Minister of Israel. Number three, I happen to be Jewish. But it's in that order. American citizen, Secretary of State of the United States, and then Jewish. She writes back, that is why I look forward to an extraordinary close working relationship with you, because here in Israel, we read from right to left. <laughs> It was a wise response, identity. And here, I ask you to recall, in Judaism we have an expression in Talmud Brachas 12, the final scene, the punchline, sums it all up, the grand finale. It's not enough to know how to take off, you gotta know how to land. And it's the moment of landing that has tremendous significance. The sealing of the moment, chito. In two days, the world, the Jewish world all over will read the 10 chapters of the biblical book of Esther. One of the greatest moments in Jewish history when a Hitler of his day almost successfully attempted genocide. And unlike 70 years ago, there were no Jews living outside of the Persian empire that stretched from India to Ethiopia, including all of the countries where Jews lived at the time. This is before Christopher Columbus discovered the other side of the planet. How does this remarkable story end? The last verse. Now most of you at that point, especially the ADDs, have lost patience, patience with the Megillah. I know that. But the final verse is always critical. Ki Mardechai, Mardechai is Mishnah Mardechai Yehudi Mishnah He is the Prime Minister of Persia. Second to the King. Wow. Next. Godalai Yehud. To be Prime Minister of an Empire is nothing. To be great among the Jews. Ooh, that's tough. Further, it says, He's even liked by most Jews. Now that's a compliment. Not all, of course, that can't be. There's always a few people who have issues. But most Jews, not bad. He seeks the welfare of his people. What is the final tribute to this hero who gave us the salvation of Purim, still celebrated 2400 years later? He speaks peacefully to all of his children. Really? Wow. Prime Minister of Persia. Yeah. Great among the Jews. Okay. Beloved by most Jews. Seeks the welfare of his nation. But the zenith, the punchline, when do you hit the crescendo is with Shalom? He speaks peacefully to all of his children. Is that such a difficult thing to speak? I also speak peacefully to my children. Especially when I'm away. <laughs> That's the ultimate tribute to Mardukha. He speaks peacefully 
L'chol zare, that's how the Megillah ends. Think about it. Friends, in 1959, there was a public debate in McGill University in Canada between two personalities. The ambassador of Israel in Canada was a man named Rabbi Dr. Jacob Herzog. He was a brother of Chaim Herzog, who was the president of Israel. He was the son of Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog, who was second chief rabbi of Israel, succeeded Rav Kook. He was a student of Rabbi Isser Zalman Meltzer, the Rosh Hashiva of Eitz Chaim, the author of Evan Azal. And he was a brilliant and talented figure himself. He died unfortunately young. He was the council general of Israel in Canada, Jacob Herzog. He debated publicly somebody some of you know very well, Professor Toynbee, the world-renowned British historian who didn't like the Jews much, and I see that his grandchildren are following his legacy pretty nicely in Oxford and other places. And Arnold Toynbee debated Herzog, and the question was, are Jews entitled to a homeland? Are Jews a culture, a religion, or are they actually a nation? He argued that Judaism is an idea. There are Australian Jews, there are British Jews, there are American Jews, there are Russian Jews, and French Jews. You're not dealing with a nation. That Christians can be of all nationalities. And Dr. Herzog was responding. And he presented an idea that I want to develop here with you this evening, but the nucleus comes from him. He said, imagine three Olympic airplanes land one evening. One lands in Athens. And an old man comes out, you can see that he's used his brain, and the man in the airport comes up and greets him, welcome to Greece, what is your name? And the man says, my name is Socrates. And the man in the airport says, really, Socrates, what brings you to Athens? He says, you ask, what brings Socrates to Athens? This is my city. Take me to the Acropolis. He says, <coughs> for eight dollars I can show you the remnants of the Acropolis. He says, how is Greek philosophy doing? He says, nobody is into Greek philosophy. You mean children don't know Socrates? They don't know Plato? They don't know Aristotle? He says, man, nobody talks about these people. What do you talk about in cafes and salons? We talk about iPhone 7, iPhone 8, iPhone 10. Take me to Mount Olympus. There's nothing there. Take me to Zeus. Nobody worships Zeus anymore. He says, what do you worship? The Greek Orthodox Church. Socrates says, what's the Greek Orthodox Church? He says, where have you been, Socrates? You don't know about the church? He says, no, what is that? Christianity. He says, what's that all about? So he tells him the story in brief. He says, you know, every Jewish boy who grows up in a Jewish home is raised by a Jewish mother who tells him not only that he's God's gift to humanity, but that he is God himself. And that's how most of us Jewish boys grow up, believing that we are actually God. But then... Sooner or later, we're lucky enough to marry a Jewish woman. <laughs> and within a few months, usually within a few weeks, and Mahadrim and Mahadrim within a few hours, <laughs> the wives make it very clear to the husbands, not only are they not gods, not only are they not demigods, not only are they not God's gift to humanity, but there is a question if they are even entitled to have an opinion <laughs> on this planet. They actually have to prove that they have any legitimacy and any rights at all to even exist without ducking. And every Jewish man is now conflicted, and therefore most of us are in therapy, and most of Jewish men's therapy is basically negotiating 
the contrast between what your mother taught you about yourself and what your wife keeps on teaching you about yourself. And living in that tension and in the eye of the storm between being a god and questioning your very legitimacy to breathe <laughs> creates an existential crisis that we bring to our therapists' offices and some of you will never resolve this dilemma till your last breath. But here's the deal, this is with most Jewish men. But Yashka never got married. <laughs> so he continued to maintain what his mother believed about him. And today, two and a half billion people actually believe the same. I could have done the same thing if I didn't get married. <laughs> Socrates says, how is the Greek Empire doing, Alexander the Great's Empire? He says, sir, there's no Greek Empire for 2,600 years. He says, what are you? We're a country and member of NATO. What's NATO? He explains to him what NATO. There's no Greek Empire, no, we're not even sure we're going to survive. Our economy is in the end. We don't know the future of Greece. Why don't we speak ancient Greek, Socrates says. There's nobody speaks ancient Greek. Socrates looks at him and says, this is not my my, my Athens, get me out of here. Another airplane lands in Rome. A man walks out of the airplane, you can see he's a statesman. He's a warrior, some wounds on his heart. The man says, welcome to Rome, what is your name? My name is Julius Caesar. It's not from the Caesar sound. He <laughs> says, you moron, I could have beheaded you for that in the good old days. The Caesar of Rome, tell me, how is Rome? Do people still feel dread when they hear the word Rome? He says, sir, no one feels dread when they hear the word Rome. He says, there's no Roman Empire. He says, no, since Constantine, 1500 years, there's no Roman Empire. He says, what is Rome? It's a city. We're in Italy. What's that? A member of NATO. Coliseum for eight dollars and twenty-five cents. I'll show you the remnants. Take me to the steps of the Senate where I utter those words: "A two brute, then Caesar falls." There's no Senate, and there's no steps of the Senate. Take me to my gladiator for seven dollars. I'll show you the excavations. Take me to my gymnasiums for nine dollars. I'll show you some of the remnants there. Take me to worship at Venice. Nobody worships Venice. What do you worship? The Vatican. What's the Vatican? Catholicism. What's Catholicism? Christianity. What's Christianity, Julius Caesar says? And here he goes again. Every Jewish boy grows up in a Jewish mother's home who teaches him that he's God, and some of us get married and some don't. He says, why don't you speak Latin? He says, a few professors speak Latin. He says, well, do pe what are we famous for? There's pizza and pasta. <laughs> Julius Caesar says, this is not my Rome. Bye-bye, I'm out of here. A third Olympic airplane lands. This one at Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. <laughs> An old man walks out of the airplane and somebody comes up to him, greets him and says two words, Shalom Aleichem. And the man responds, Aleichem Shalom. Mashim what is your name? And the old man says, Shmi, my name is Moshe. My name is Moshe Moses. Ah, Gamani Moshe! Moshe, now maybe you could give me a loan. I need some money. 
I'm here eight months. I came from Georgia, Tbilisi, a city, Aliyah, Nefesh, Benefesh, and they already ripped me off. Everything they ripped off. And you're an investment that I'm collecting money for stock anyway. Like he tells me, you have to love Jews. They're not always easy, but you gotta love them. You just know. I travel a lot, and I love Jews. I don't like traveling with Jews. It's true. It's true. I love Jews. I've even married a Jewish wife. My mother is Jewish, believe it or not. But traveling with Jews, Hashem Yishmerenu. I love traveling with Gentiles. I'll be honest with you. Gentiles come four hours before the flight. That's how it is. And they sit and they come without baggage. They don't have 3,300 years of baggage. We all come. You ever saw Jews get onto airplanes? It's from Manchester to London. Four pieces of baggage. One is his mother's baggage, his mother-in-law's baggage, his father's baggage, his school's baggage, his community's baggage. And they come with books and with food, and they all come late, and they open up every glove compartment you ever saw, and they go back and forth, back and forth, and the poor Gentile is cursing the day he took an L out flight, he doesn't realize, and it's banging, boom, 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 and after 20 minutes, the flight attendant looks at the Jew and says, the whole plane is waiting for you, please sit down now and fasten your seatbelt, and he looks at his wife, says she's a Nazi. <laughs> she's an anti-Semite. The Holocaust will not happen again. Nobody will tell Jews what to do. I will not sit down and fast this. And I state, as is, state is standing. Finally, finally he sits down and you'll forgive me. It's very, very hard. Something is Mincha. Twenty minutes later there's Myriv. A few minutes later, the sun rises, so they're doing shakas. Yeah, I'm an LL airplane. Oh, God. He sits down on the thing. And he wanted to sleep for 11 hours. But you can't with other Jews. So he put up a big sign. He made a poster near his seat. And on the sign, it said as follows. I daven I'm not available for a minute. I daven my roof. I don't want to daven shakas. I will daven when I land. I don't have diapers. I don't have pacifiers. I don't have baby food. I don't have a Tehillim of Chumash. I don't have a prayer book. I don't have a Mishnayis. I don't have sushi. I don't have sponge cake. I don't have Tylenol. I don't have antibiotics. And I don't know the Zgulas of the Baba Sali and the Tzayla the Karastir for a plane crash. I do not know any of these things. Five, and he falls asleep. Ah, it's paradise. Five minutes later, somebody's shoving into his ribs. They don't just wake you up, they put their fingers, you know, you know they do it in your ribs, in your ribs. He wakes up, he looks at the kid, he says, read the sign! So I read the sign. Read it again! I read it again. So what do you want? He says, none of the above. What do you want? It's doctor for the vision. Charity for the vision to school. You have to love Jews. Very restless people. I was in a kosher restaurant. A waiter is going from table to table and asking one question. Is anything all right? Very stressed out people. Sometimes gentle.
tongue. You know, I speak to a lot of Gentiles. They say, what is this? And I say, you have to understand our psychology. For us, every supper we see as potentially the last supper. <laughs> we don't take any chances with anything. If you see food, you eat and eat and eat. Because you don't know when the next meal will be. Maybe in a year. Maybe in 25 years. Who knows what's going to be? That's our psychology. We still, we still traumatize them anyways. And I'm in the middle of a story. You forgot. Get out. <laughs> so he says, Moshe, Gabadi Moshe! Moshe, where are you from? He says, I'm from Egypt. He says, what brings you here? I came home. He says, you ever here? He says, no, why do you call it home? He says, 40 years I tried getting into this place. It didn't work. Trust me, I have a right to call it my home. Moshe, welcome home. Moshe looks at him and says, I have one awkward question. I came, I was in a rush. Socrates was rushing. Julius Caesar was rushing. I forgot something. I don't know if you know what it is. You think anybody here in Israel has what they call talis and tefillin, a prayer shawl and phylacteries? And the Moshe from Georgia says, now I'm starting not to like you. You think you're holier than that. You're the only one who knows about Judaism. You're asking me if anybody has to fill in. And he rolls up his sleeve. He says, look, I just put it on a few minutes ago. You can see the sign of the strap. Of course we have talent and fill in here in Israel. Moshe says, wow. One more question. In heaven there's no food. We starve there. Not just 40 days, 40 nights. It's thousands of years without food. Any food here in Israel? He says, any food? That's what we live for. In fact, all of our holidays, as they tried to kill us, we want, let's go eat. And we turn our enemies into food plants. We take a haman, and we turn him into a hamantash. We take out the yachis, we turn him into a latke. We take pharaoh, we turn him into matzah ball. I was Hanukkah speaking in a big college, Brooklyn College in New York. The president is a female, she's a Gentile. She asked me, Rabbi, why do they eat so many donuts and latkes on Hanukkah? And I say to her, very simply, Hanukkah represents our victory over the Greeks. The Greeks were into four things. Looks, sports, fashion, and exercise. <laughs> so we eat as many latkes and donuts as possible to make sure we never ever look like them. And segregation remains eternal at times. He tells Moshe, of course there's food everywhere in Israel, there's food. Lafas, but flafas. Moshe says, but I have this thing with kosher. You have kosher food? He says, again, here you go with your judgmentalism. Kosher food in the airport. There's 73 restaurants. 90% of them are kosher. And every type of kosher. Plain kosher, glad kosher, almost glad kosher, kosher spar, mahadim, 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 rabbanut, badats, this badats, that badats, eidachredis, every type of kosher. Moshe says, wow. And as he comes down, and Moshe from Tbilisi kisses the mezuzah, and Moshe says, what are you doing? He says, shame on you, you don't know what that is. 3,000 years ago, we had a man named Moses, and he told us to put these chapters of the Bible on each door. And we kiss them, and we go in and out. He takes them into the, one of the schools there, and old man Moshe hears the teacher speaking to the students, and the teacher tells the students, open up your books. And they open up the books, and the teacher reads loud. Vayedaber Adonai al Moshe 
God spoke to Moses, saying, And two large tears that we could call pearls flow down Moses' cheeks as he hears the teacher reading the texts of the Hebrew Bible of the Tanakh of the Chumash with his students. And Professor Herzog turns to British historian Arnold Twinby. Professor Twinby, are the Greeks and the Italians a nation? If Socrates or Julius Caesar came back today to Athens or Rome, all they would recognize is the geographical soil. But they would not encounter not the same values, not the same faith, not the same tradition, not the same language, not the same God, not the same commandments, not the same culture, not the same civilization, not the same belief system. Almost nothing the same. And yet you call the Italians a nation, the Greeks a nation. If Moses was to come today, back to our homeland, to Israel, what would he see? The same language, the same texts, the same philosophy, the same values, the same tradition, the same heritage, the same laws, the same mitzvahs, the same arguments for heaven's sake. The same ram's horn that we blew 3,000 years ago that gave everybody migraines. We still blow it. The matzah is still stale. When you taste matzah, you know that it's 3,000 years old. <laughs> the same matzah and the same lulav, the same Shabbos and the same tzitzis, the same Torah scroll, the same text, the same God, the same faith, the same belief system. Professor Toynbee, this is not a nation. If this is not a nation, Professor Toynbee, you tell me what does constitute a nation. And to his credit, Arnold Toynbee says, Dr. Herzog, you have a point. But the question I ask of you tonight is, how did this happen? How did this occur? A people that doesn't constitute even one quarter of one percent of humanity. Our number is smaller than a small statistical error on a Chinese census. There are two and a half billion Catholics, one and a half billion Muslims, 1.2 billion Chinese, another million as I'm talking. <laughs> and we're barely 14 million. We're fighting for every Jew. We're not 1%, we're not even a quarter of 1%. 0.02 of humanity. And yet, I ask you, where is Pharaoh? Where is Nebuchadnezzar? Where is Haman? Where is Achashverosh? Where is Alexander? Where is Titus, Caliglio, Pompeii, Adrian, Vespasian, Tiberius? Where is Chmolonetsky? Where is Turkmenei? Where is Stalin? Where is Hitler? Hitler, where are they? And the answer is in Wikipedia. <laughs> you could Google it right now. We are the Jewish people. The answer is we created Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> you can open up the page of Titus and edit it. You can open up Haman and edit his obituary. How did that happen? What was the secret? Friends, 
The answer is two points. Number one, any culture or nation, for it to remain young, it has to be focused on the young. Most nations made a mistake. They thought success comes from focusing on the old, on the mature. The Jews understood, if you put in most of your energies into the young, you remain young. We are still children 3,000 years later, because our greatest joy and focus in life is our children. There was a rabbi once who used to speak from the, from the pulpit about loving children. And then one day, they paved his driveway with new concrete, and you know children love to leave a mark on this universe. And they start dancing in the pavement, and the rabbi comes out and begins hollering, lunatics, brats, you should be behind bars. And his wife comes out, she says, rabbi, rabbi, you always talk about love to children. He says, I love children in the abstract, not in the concrete. A nation that makes its focus its children remains young and vibrant forever. Open, curious, inquisitive, loving, fun, and humor. That's the Jewish secret. How do I know? The day Jews left Egypt, Moses gave them a sermon. What did he say to them in that sermon? The day they left Egypt. What would you say? The day you liberated four million people from prison, what would you tell them? Most Jews would say, let's go eat. <laughs> Maybe Nelson Mandela's biography, the long walk to freedom. Maybe pay tribute to all those who stayed behind. Moses said two words. Don't take it for granted. Tell the story to your child. But that wasn't enough. Don't only tell the story. Live the story. I want you every year to take seven days out of the year and eat stale matzah. Because we ate it when we left this land. Eat bitter herbs. I want you every day to tell the story and to live the story. David Ben-Gurion is summoned by the Peel Commission. Lord Peel from Britain makes a Peel Commission in 1937 to define the future of what was called Palestine. And at some point, he turns to Ben-Gurion and he says, Mr. Ben-Gurion, where is your Kushan? Kushan is the Arabic term for a deed. Where is your Kushan to Palestine? The Arabs have a Kushan. Where is your Kushan? You were born in Poland. Your name is not David Ben-Gurion. Your name is David Green. There was a Bible on the pulpit. And Ben-Gurion, who wasn't a religious Jew, he was a secular Jew, he pointed to the Tanakh, and he sticked it up, and he said, Lord Peel, this is my Kushan. It says here 800 times that God gave us this piece of land. Lord Peel, I want to ask you a question. You have your professors and analysts and researchers and professors and journalists and thinkers. How many of your children know the date that the Mayflower arrived. How many people were in the Mayflower? What food did they eat? Anybody? He says, ask any Jewish child who got a minimal Jewish education. He'll tell you, the day we left Egypt, how many people left and what we ate when we left Egypt. 
Those were the two ingredients Moses gave the Jewish people. Your children, and don't speak it. Live it. Make it part of your life. But not only that, what does it mean to tell the story to your children? What does this mean, my friends? You know, there was a boy who had to give a bar mitzvah speech. And he came to his mother and he said, Mommy, what should I speak about at the bar mitzvah? She said, speak about family. We love feeling good about ourselves. What should I say? Talk about yichas. You know what yichas is? They talk about yichas in Manchester. And your siblings, that's what they do. We need you, where you come from, right? And uh, she said, well, great, Mommy, where do we come from? Mommy says, where do we come from? God and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. Comes to his daddy. Daddy, where do we come from? Daddy was a graduate of Oxford. And he says, where do we come from? We have evolved over billions of years from apes. And the apes, they evolved from other primates. How did it begin? Daddy says it began with a primordial, super primordial cholent of gases and bacteria. He comes back to the mother and says, Mom, I'm confused about my bar mitzvah speech. She said, why? He said, I want to talk about our origin, but I don't know where we come from. You tell me we come from God, Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah. Daddy tells me we come from apes, monkeys and bacteria. <laughs> what should I say at my bar mitzvah? And the mother says, there's no contradiction. Your father was talking about his side of the family. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm talking about my side of the family, friends. <clears throat> How do I look? How do I look at my child? I never understood this mitzvah. My earliest memory, you go to show, you're waiting for a minute, right? You want to count if there's 10 people, what should you do? One, two, three, four, five. No, you're not allowed to count Jews. What do you do? Baruch atah Hashem alakeinu melechaylam amaytzi lechamina aruf. Or whatever verse you use in Anglo jury. Why can't you count Jews? What's the big deal? We always love to count, right? Jews go to a concert with a Jewish singer. Gentiles enjoy the concert. And Jews count how many people are there to know how many tickets were sold, to know how much the singer is going away with that That's more important than anything else. You come to a dinner, you want to know how many people. Oh, so they made a lot of money. They come to me for a donation. Such narcissism. That's what we do for a living. We count. Heads! God says, don't count Jews. Why not? There could be a plague. It's this week's portion. King David made a colossal error. Count to Jews. How do you count Jews? What does the Torah say? Zeyidnon. You gotta make an appeal. That's why we make appeals. You wanna count Jews? Everybody gotta give a contribution. You wanna be counted? You gotta give. You give, we count the contribution. We don't count those. Rebbeinu Shalolam, why not? Can anybody explain to me what does God care if you count Jews? The answer, friends, is very simple, very profound, and very vital. We count heads to flex muscles, to show power, whether it's an army, or a company, or a country. 
If you look at the amount of the Jewish people in the world, it's easy to get despondent. 14 million. And therefore in every generation people said we will not survive. So God says, never count Jews. If you count Jews, you will get the wrong impression. You want to understand the Jewish people? Zayitnu. Count their contributions to the world. That's where you will see the Jewish people. Take the four revolutions that created modern society. Einstein, physics and science, Albert Einstein. Politics, manifesto of Karl Marx. Psychoanalysis and psychology, Sigmund Freud, or his real name, Schleimler Freud. <laughs> Biology, Charles Darwin. Marx, Freud, Einstein, Darwin created modern society for good or bad. Three of them were Jewish. Darwin was wrong. <laughs> Three of them were Jewish? I don't want to sound like, now your Uncle Harry, who loves to come Shabbos dinner, you know, everybody has an Uncle Harry who likes to about Nobel Prizes. You know that uncle? He still wears those ties from the 1950s and knows every Nobel Prize Jewish winner. I don't want to sound like Uncle Harry, but there were 800 Nobel Prizes since 1901. <clears throat> Jews are not even 1% of civilization. I would expect one Jew to have received the Nobel Prize in the last hundred years. I would have expected hundreds of Muslims. In reality, there are four Muslims who received Nobel Prizes. One of them, Yasser Arafat for peace. <laughs> I look at the Jewish people. 44% in medicine. 36% economics. Psychology. <coughs> literature. Peace. More than almost 200 Nobel Prizes received by the Jewish people. Completely disproportionate. How did this happen? God says, don't count Jews. Count their contributions. If you look at yourself in the mirror, you can get depressed. But if you start giving and you will see your impact, that's when you will understand who you are. Moses didn't only say, speak to your child. Tell your child and explain to him or her what he or she can give, can contribute. The other day, I finished a speech for children at risks organizations in Deal, New Jersey. A man comes over to me, he's a therapist for 35 years and a professor of psychology at Yeshiva University. His name is Dr. David Palkovitz. And he tells me, 25 years ago, a boy walked into my office. He tells this to me firsthand. 16-year-old boy from Flatbush, New York. I say, what are you doing here? He says, my father says I need therapy. I said, why? All my brothers are learning. I'm a couch potato. I wake up 4 o'clock in the afternoon and I play. What did they have then? Uh, Donkey Kong, do you remember? Today nobody even knows what this is. Remember Donkey Kong? That was like the biggest sin. Today it's like a mitzvah. If your kids play Donkey Kong, you're good old. How fine my kids would play Donkey Kong all day. Pac-Man, Donkey Kong. Game Boys, whatever they had. Toy Man, I don't remember all those good games. <laughs> That's like today, Mamish Kedusha. <laughs> so just bring that into all the yeshivas, make that the curriculum, we'll do it. So, uh, <laughs> I'm cleaning the YouTube. In any case, so, <laughs> my father wants me there. Palkovitz tells me, he says, in two minutes, I fell in love with this boy. He was brilliant, he was a chevron, he was a good kid. 
at the end of the session, I tell them, you don't need therapy. <laughs> You're good. Bring in your parents next week <laughs> and your siblings. And if you have grandparents, bring them in. <laughs> I tell Pelkin, it's what brings in grandparents to therapy. Our grandparents believed in moving on. Many of them dealt with emotional constipation. You'll bring your grandparents to therapy. What were your feelings about your mother? I didn't have a mother anymore. <laughs> you have the luxury to be resentful towards your mother. We didn't have luxury. If we had food, we were happy. If we survived, we were happy. Thank God we have the luxury to get into bad moods and have issues. People had to survive. They didn't have time to have issues. Thank God we have time to have issues. He brings them up. He says, you're right. I had a hunch. The grandparents got to come in. The next week, they're all in therapy. I tell the father what's the issue, and the father gets up and he says, I'll be honest, I have a beautiful Jewish family. And he starts extolling the virtues of his children as fathers love to do. This one finished shots four times. This one six times. This one gives a shir dafyayni four times a day. This one is the head of a yeshiva, the head of a koilo. This one founded Atzala. This one is the greatest man of kindness since time immemorial. And my daughters? Unbelievable! And here's one 16-year-old, good head, wastes his time. He's a couch potato. He's an embarrassment for the family. He's an embarrassment for himself. Dr. Palkovitz tells me as he's talking, the grandfather stands up and says, Grandchildren, I want to share something with you. I see your father. Never shared it with you, even though I told it to I come from Poland. I was one of 15. All my brothers were assiduous students. They would sit and learn. I was the black sheep of the family. But unlike today, there was no diagnosis. There was no ADHD, ADD, PDD. Everybody had the same diagnosis. It was called a frost. <laughs> and it worked actually for some of the ADDs, for some it didn't. It was an interesting remedy, it was cheaper. <laughs> and it was simple. So I was, the, I was the black sheep of the family. My father would fight with me. 1938, I picked up a book. I read it from cover to cover. The name of the book was Mein Kampf. I came home, I told my father, Poland is on the border of Germany, the author of Mein Kampf is going to do exactly what he says. In a few years, there won't be any Jews in Poland. Tata, Tati, let's run away. And my father said, Heruf Reden stop speaking nonsense. If you would be learning like your brothers, you wouldn't speak this way. And I said, Tati, I should be learning like my brothers, but you know, I'm more savvy than my brothers. I'm smarter than my brothers. I'm more street smart than my brothers. I know Hitler is going to do it. Please take the family and let's run before it's too late. For two weeks we argued. And I told my father I'm going to have to run myself. I said goodbye to my 15, 14 siblings. I kissed my father and mother goodbye. I crossed the Atlantic Ocean to the other side. In 1945 I learned that no one in my family survived. I built, as you know, a successful business. I married, and you are my beautiful grandchildren. And today I look around this office and I ask myself which one of my grandchildren resembles me most? Demeanor, character.
characteristics, personality, and disposition. And it's this 16-year-old boy. You are a carbon copy of your Zeta. I look at all of you and say, never disrespect this boy because it's due to the personality of this type of child that you have the privilege to be alive today and study God's Torah and learn day and night as you do because of a boy like him. Don't denigrate him ever just because he doesn't look like you and fit into the limited and finite box in which you impose God and religion into. Dr. Palkovitz tells me he sat down. There was stunning silence in the room. And Palkovitz said, this session is over. <laughs> he tells me the man took the grandchild into his business and everything worked out. I say, Dr. Palkovitz, don't leave me hanging. What's happening now? He says, now, 25 years later, the grandfather passed on. This grandson runs the entire business, extremely successful, multi-million dollar business, and all of his brothers work for him. <laughs> Every one of them. And he supports them beautifully. And then I understood. It's not only tell the story to your child, it's recognize the infinite potential and creative ability of every single member of our people. That is the secret of how a little nation not only survived, a nation that had the greatest impact on civilization. Forget the Nobel Prizes. You want to talk about the world of the spirit? Who gave the world God, conscience, monotheism, good and evil, happiness, history, purpose, dignity, joy, redemption, repentance, unity. As Professor Cohill did it in The Gifts of the Jews, the Irish writer of that great book, The Gifts of the Jews. How did this happen? The Talmud says in Shabbos 119, Don't touch my Mashiach, my anointed ones. These are the little children. When all of you were children, you either dreamt of being Mashiach or helping bring Mashiach. Every little kid has the dream to change the world. But we get older and we become cynical. So the Talmud says, Never kill the child inside of you. Never kill your dreams. Never allow your idealism to be stifled. Never grow up fully, my dear friends. Our problem is we grow up too fast. And then we sit like this. Let's see if you can impress me. The Talmud says, don't kill your inner Mashiach. Don't kill your inner drive to make a difference in the world, to bring redemption a step closer. And never ever doubt the infinite potentiality of every single one of those children. So when the Talmud the Megillah wants to describe the greatness of Mordechai, he was prime minister of Persia. Okay, not bad. He was a doctor. Wow. As good Jewish mothers used to say, my son a doctor. If he's slow, a lawyer. <laughs> if he's really, really underdeveloped, an accountant. <laughs> if he's absolutely sugar, a rabbi. <laughs> That's what I went into. 
Because when I was born, they said, why, why? And I'm trying to answer the question. So Mardukhan, it's taken me around the world. If you could just answer that question, I'll just sit home, I won't bother you. So Mardukhan is the Prime Minister of Persia. Every Jewish mother would say, wow, my son, Mardukhan, give a talk. Megillah says, no. God Yehudim. He was great among the Jewish people, but that's not enough. You know what the greatest thing about Mordechai was? He was at peace with all of his children. You know why? It's easy to be a hero to the world. But your own children know you best. And if you want to know, this is my own litmus test, the one most defining difference between giants among the Jewish people and giants in the world at large, it's not how famous they are. It's what their children thought of them. It's painful to say, Albert Einstein was the man of the century in Time Magazine. Not Churchill, not Roosevelt. Albert Einstein, Ayit from Germany and Princeton. But his own children, Theodor Herzl, Benjamin Zayn Herzl, changed the modern story of Jewish history. But he couldn't get his own children to remain Jewish. Fritz Haber, half the world is alive today because of Fritz Haber who gave us synthetic fertilizer. Four billion people eat bread today because of a German Jewish chemist who came from a Sudisha family and was baptized. Half the protein you ate today. Did you eat protein today? Half the protein you could thank a Jew, Fritz Haber. His wife killed herself as a result of living with him. Rousseau wrote the most important work on modern Jewish and modern education. The great philosopher of the Enlightenment, Rousseau. But Rousseau had five of his children left on the steps of a hospital because he wouldn't take them home where they died within the first few months. Take Hemingway and take Tolstoy and take Isbin and take Nietzsche and take the most world-renowned intellectuals who shaped the modern world. And their own children thought they were hypocrites, traitors, promiscuous, despicable lowlifes. We talk about them in such glory as their wives and children. Ah, don't mention their names. Beethoven rocked the world with the Ninth Symphony and the Fifth. But ask his family what they thought of him. You don't read about this, but you can read about this in Paul Johnson's book, Intellectuals. You wouldn't trust your soul with babysitting your boy for five minutes, I promise you. But he is the greatest thinker of philosophy. He told the world how to live. Comes to Megillah and says, you know what the greatness of Mordechai was? Not that he was a celebrity. His own children looked at him as a hero. And trust me, I'm no Mordechai, I'm no Rousseau. But I understand this point very, very little. A little bit I understand it. I was once speaking in Binyaneho, Oman, Jerusalem. 5,000 women. I finished my speech. I get a standing ovation. 
And it's nice for a man to get a standing ovation from 5,000 women after. <laughs> my mother-in-law never gives me a standing ovation. My mother never sat down, but my mother-in-law. And they're clapping, and I'm leaving the hall. And 200 people are following me. And one woman's like, you changed my life. Can I talk to you? And the cell phone rings. And I look and I see it's my wife. And I say, hi, Esti. And he says, you know, it's so nice that you go to Israel and you inspire the whole world. But the kids here don't have a father. And I'm like, Esti, one moment, one moment. <laughs> Rabbi Jacobson, could you come here every single week? We'll pay you a first class ticket. Please come give lectures. And I'm like, sure, one moment. Esti, you know, you're helping everybody, but your kids are going to need therapy because they don't have a father. I'm like, yes, one moment, Esti. There's 200 women. Uh, could we sit with you? Could you stay another few days? I'm like, sure. This was the best thing ever. I'm like, Esther, yes. She's like, this has to change. I had enough of this. I will not mother these children as a single parent. You're alive, but yet they're being orphans. You're going to have to pay for so much therapy. I'm like, I get it, Esther, just one moment. And these women are like, your children are so lucky to have you as a father. Your wife must adore you. I'm like, <laughs> she absolutely adores me. One moment. And Esty's like, it's so hard to be married to a guy like She really adores me. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And I'll be very frank with you. It was much more pleasant to tell Esty, I'll call you back later, and to bask and bathe in the accolades of hundreds of wonderful Jerusalem princesses of God. <laughs> but in the depth of my heart I knew this is all a 20 minute high. It's just like intoxication. You sober up. But there's a woman thousands of miles away who's actually thinking about me. Not just when I gave a good speech. And if I don't realize that's where life is, I will make the same mistake, like so many other people. Because for the outside, it's easy for Mordechai to be the inspiration of the world, but the Megillah says that wasn't Mordechai. And you know who says this? The 12th century Spanish commentator, the Ebenezer, says he was so humble that he never, ever did stop speaking and spending time with each of his children. The Dover Shalom Mechal Zarei. In the office, you're a hero. That's not where it's at. At home, because my children know who I really am. My children know me not only in my conscious, but in my subconscious. When your children remain connected to you, that's what makes you a success story. Marx didn't have the courage to call his own son his son. It was his son, and he couldn't admit it. He wouldn't be a father to his own son. This is inconceivable with a personality like Rashi, or Maimonides, or the Noida Behuda, or the Rajbu, the Arizal, or the Beisiris, or the Rakivayi, or the Vilmagon, or the Balshemtiv, or Abchayim Balajma, or the Chsam Seifer. It's inconceivable by the Jewish giants that they would sacrifice that which is closest to them. Because when you're really connected, you know that a nation that forgets its children dies fast. A nation that is tuned into its children remains childlike and young 
forever. You know, my dear friends, I conclude with this moment. It's hard to tell the story, but tonight it's important to tell the story. It happened in Dumbrov. Anybody knows Dumbrov? Dumbrov is a city in Poland. It was 1942, it was Friday afternoon, it was a short Friday, winter days. The SS marched out the Jews of Dumbrov into a nearby forest. Three or four thousand Jews are sitting on the ground, on the earth. Two pits were dug in the early morning. They sat to eat lunch, and the Jews were sitting on the ground Friday afternoon. The sun was beginning to set. A man stands up, he looks at the people, and he says, you all know that these two pits are not here to look at. We're all going to be there soon. They want to add insult to injury. They don't want to kill our bodies. They want to kill our souls. This will be the last time we will welcome Shabbat here on earth. I say, let's do it with pride, dignity, and joy. Don't give them the victory of crushing our souls and obliterating our faith. And this Jew turns to his fellow Jews and he says, help me welcome the Shabbos together last time on earth. And he begins singing in Dombrov in the forest. Shalom Aleichem, Malachay Ashores, Malachay Elyoin. And the Jews joined him. Of the holy Jews of Dumbrov. 
whose shalom aleichem was interrupted by bullets in the middle of the singing. Just, just moments before Shabbos came in. And I thought to myself, wow, 70 years later, we were given the task to make sure that their melody will not be interrupted. Who can we trust with the mission of making sure that that ballad, that symphony of the six million Kedoshim never ever gets interrupted because we live today in a generation whereby so many of our brothers and sisters, the melody got interrupted, not because of maliciousness, but because of apathy, because of indifference. They once asked a Jew, what's the difference between apathy and ignorance? And he said, I don't know and I don't care. And that is why I am moved, and you should be moved, to be part of the incredible, extraordinary, miraculous work of seed. The word for children in Torah, in the Megillah, is what? Zaroi. What is a zera? A zera is a seed. Rabbi Joey Git, now you know why you're naming the seed. Not national environment, dedication, dedication. I asked him what seed is. So he told me sustaining environment, education, development. Episode It's because Mordechai said, he planted the seeds of Klaustral. What does seed guarantee in Manchester and in England? And God willing, in all of its branches in the future around the world, the way Rapshaya is going. One thing, and that is never ever to forget that as long as we remain loyal to that extraordinary story of our tradition of the Torah, and we make sure to bequeath it to our children, our eternity is guaranteed. And not only to our children, but inspired through our children. The Panavijan Rav, Rav Kahneman once said, children without parents are called orphans. Parents without children creates an orphaned generation. Parents without children creates an orphaned generation. Our children are yearning for a story to hold on to, for identity, for connection, for depth, for meaning, for vitality. Today, the Jewish world, Anglo Jewry and the Jewry Jewish world, stands at a crossroads. Heschel said, We're reading more and more about less and less. Oscar Wilde said, We know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Technologically, we're getting ahead and ahead and ahead. The last 50 years brought us developments that 5,000 years of humanity have not brought us. But as a great Russian politician once told his constituents, I have great news. Yesterday we were standing at the edge of the abyss. Today we took a giant step forward. We are taking giant steps forward. But do we know where we're going? Do I know where I'm going? Do I look at the speedometer? I look at the highway. And this is where Yiddishkeit, the power of Torah, the power of mitzvahs, the power of Judaism, tells us not only who we are, but where we are going. 
Every Jewish child is a revolutionary. But what would have happened to Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart if he would have grown up in a home without a piano? You know? Where would the genius go? It would go somewhere and it would probably be destructive. Thank God he had a piano. Every Jewish child, my friends, is a little Mozart. Every Jew has a revolutionary spirit. We have an impact beyond our imagination. But you need a piano. And for the Jewish people, the piano is Torah. The outlet for the profoundest creativity, this is what they should give. And therefore, being part of this incredible initiative and organization that creates future seeds and plant seeds for adults with children is so moving and so profound. And it's tonight that I understood. I don't know if you know who was the last Jewish trivia, who was the last prophet of the Jewish people. The last prophet of the Jewish people is a man named Malachi. Malachi. He lived in the time of Purim. The beginning of the Second Temple era. He has a little book called the Book of Malachi. And the last verse of the last chapter of the last prophet of the Jewish people is what? One day I will send you Elijah the prophet. Very strange words. He will return the heart of the fathers on the children. What does that mean? So Rashi says, He will bring back the hearts of the parents through the children. Albonim is through the children. And then Rashi says these words, and I quote, there will be people who will reach out to children and say, Wow, you love Yiddishkeit? Go with love and speak to your parents. Bring this to your parents. Who's doing this? The last message of the last prophet to the Jewish people. Do you know who's doing this? Come Tuesday morning, come Friday morning, come Monday morning, come Tuesday evening to see it. And this is what's happening. Jewish children are being inspired. And they come home and they say, Mommy, why don't we have a Shabbos dinner? Mommy, why don't we know what the Torah is? Mommy, why don't we have a mezuzah? Tati, why don't I ever see what a shul is? The last prophet spoke two and a half thousand years ago about seed. Veheshiv lev avos albanan. Wow! Congratulations! Mazel tov! From strength to strength. Thank you very much.
Thank you so, so much, Robert Jacobson. I have only one word, and that is wow. Ladies and gentlemen, please can I ask you a 